Deb Maisner. I'm a registered nurse, a health coach, and an alcohol-free badass. That's what I say, Ryan. And today on the show, I have Ryan Dusick. Ryan is the founding drummer of Maroon 5. He is also now an associate marriage and family therapist, and he is the author of a book that's releasing in two days. It will be out by the time y'all listen to this. It's called Harder to Breathe, a memoir of making Maroon 5, losing it all, and finding recovery. So welcome to the show, Ryan. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, I'm delighted to have you on. I got to say, I... I didn't know much about Maroon 5, so I was glad to have the memoir. And then as I was reading it, I was like, oh, interesting, because you and I have almost the exact same birthday. We were both born in September 1977, and we both, you know, grew up in the 90s with grunge rock. And, you know, it sounds like you loved Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and Nirvana and... So I thought that was really cool and I could relate to a lot of that. I think our similarities end there. (laughs) Good. Because you went on to be part of this giant band, Maroon 5. I went on to become a nurse and here I am in Boise, Idaho. And you're in, are you in LA now? Yeah. Born and bred in LA. I still live in LA. Oh, that's great. So for those that aren't familiar with Maroon 5, can you kind of share your origin story of the band and how you were a part of it? Sure. Yeah. Well, Adam Levine and I were friends. Well, I wouldn't say friends when we were little kids. We were acquaintances through family friends. He's a, he was a couple grades below me. So, you know, when you're 10 years old and, and you're around another kid who's eight, he just seemed like an annoying little brother, I guess, you know, but we, we knew each other and we actually played music together for the first time when I was about 12, when I started playing the drums, nothing really came of it. He was just strumming a rhythm guitar and we had a friend who was playing lead and we, we had a few rehearsals and that was the end of that. But then a few years later, we were both at Brentwood high school together and he had made friends with Jesse and Mick, who were the other two original members. And I was kind of the, I guess sort of sought after older drummer in school who had been playing in the school pet band for a couple of years. And I wanted to start a band with Adam because I had had realized that he was a good singer. I didn't realize that when we were kids. And then I went to see his band perform and I realized he had quite a good voice. And that was something I wanted to start a band with. He had these other two friends. He wanted me to join their band. I guess, long story short, as fate would have it, we ended up in 1994 starting the band Cars Flowers. And we, you know, kind of got going in the, in the mid nineties and got our first record deal and put out an album on Warner Brothers in 97, which flopped. (laughs) And then we had to transition and kind of start over and become Maroon 5. And that was kind of how it all began. Yeah. And so then you were with Maroon 5 when you guys became really big and started touring the world and won the Grammys. And like, what what was that like for you? Well, it was, you know, those years, I'd say were probably the best of times and the worst of times to, to quote Charles Dickens. You know, it was we had worked for a decade to get to where we, we ended up, which was, you know, global stardom we we had been a band and gone through every kind of evolution as a band and as young men growing up together 
So it was really something that we were very bonded, very connected and, and just sort of dreaming big dreams together and working really hard for a decade. And we put out the album Songs About Jane in 2002. We were on the road nonstop for a few years there. And we went platinum and had our first like big number one hit in 2004. So a decade into being a band, we were really sort of reaching the mountaintop. And at the same time, I was starting to have a lot of problems on tour, problems performing. I had joint problems and had nerve problems. In retrospect, I realized that it was also mental health issues going on that was very connected and, and sort of inextricably linked with the physical issues. As we know, mind, body, and spirit, you know, are, are all connected. So, you know, it was reaching some incredible heights, but then also falling down to some really demoralizing lows for me that kind of ended my time as a musician, as a performing musician in 2006 and led me into a really dark time in terms of depression, alcoholism, anxiety, and just really grieving the loss of that identity of being in the band. And it took me some years to really hit a bottom and, and turn a corner from that time in my life. Yeah. What, what struck me a lot in your story was, was this, the role of identity and you know, a lot of people can't relate to being in a, in a rock band, what that's like and, and being a musician and then just physically not being able to perform like you used to and mentally, like you said. But then having this thing that you do be taken away from you and having it not be your choice, you know, like it, you just got to a point where you could no longer perform. And so I, I think a lot of people lose their identity in other ways too, you know, whether it's changing your job or, or getting fired from a job or, or, you know, like getting divorced and losing your identity as, as a, a married partner or, you know, like just this concept I, identity is so huge. So what, what was that like for you to be a musician in a rock band and then have that taken away. It was devastating. You know, being in the middle of something like that, being wrapped up in, in this engine that was our band and working towards something for so long, it had become my entire sense of self because my social world was wrapped up in it. You know, all of my friends, the band, of course, being my, my close friends and, and, you know, working partners creatively. So not just friends, really like, you know, spiritual mates, you know, we were creating together. We were pushing each other. We were connecting on another level musically. And then my whole, you know, world was kind of centered around the band. And so everything else kind of was on the back burner during those years in my life. And it had become the priority. It had become all consuming in terms of my energy and focus. And to have all of that just all of a sudden disappear for me, to have been in the center of that and then to not be. And then on top of that, to be watching them from afar, still, you know, enjoying the, the, the largest level of success that you can have in that world and, and sitting at home, sort of twiddling my thumbs and feeling sorry for myself. It, it was, it was a huge loss. And I look at it as a loss of identity, a loss of self esteem, self worth, self confidence, and also just really like a, a, a real grieving process. You know, it was, 
it was, I had to go through the stages of grief, almost sort of having denial at first, like this is not really happening or I don't really care, you know, realizations about how it's not that meaningful or nothing is meaningful. I kind of reached this very nihilistic state, just like, oh, I don't give a crap about anything, you know, and, and, you know, the depression and the, and the, the bargaining and, you know, so many different things that I had to go through over a, really a decade or before I could find a place of acceptance and closure on that chapter in my life. Yeah. I like how you use the stages of grief. I, I use those a lot to explain my relationship with alcohol and, and giving up drinking. So, uh, so dealing with your identity and then on top of that, having your, your problem with drinking and drugs too. Like, can you share what your experience was with addiction? Yeah, I, you know, alcohol was, it's so insidious, you know, it wasn't something that happened overnight. It was a relationship that took a couple decades to reach the point that it did, you know, it started, it's funny, I was kind of a late bloomer and growing up, my parents raised me that alcohol and all drugs were t terrible. And, you know, that if you're having any more than just a glass of wine or a beer, you're a drunk, you know? And, and so I, I was very anti-alcohol and all of the kids at my school were smoking pot in high school. I didn't do anything like that. In my twenties, you know, I, I think I did need to loosen up a little bit. I was a little bit uptight. I was kind of a, a very perfectionist, you know, performance-driven kid, you know, very self-motivated. I was, I was shy and uncomfortable in new social situations. I wanted just my very close friends to myself, and I didn't really like making new friends or, or party situations or anything like that. So in my 20s, I made it a concerted effort to kind of lighten up a little bit, have a little more fun, and try to be more open to new opportunities socially. So alcohol became a part of that. It became, as for a lot of young people, just a facilitator of, you know, feeling more comfortable in social settings, less self-conscious, a little sillier, a little bit more playful, you know, more comfortable talking to girls, like all the stuff that as a young man, it just was a, at that point, really just a, a tool for facilitating good times. And that lasted for some years. And I, I, looking back, I think that I can recognize now how some of my thinking at that time was probably a little bit alcoholic even before I it got to a, a place where it was a big problem because it was obsessive, you know, just kind of really thinking about when I'm going to drink and how much I'm going to drink and planning it out and can't wait till the weekend and it's going to be epic and just all the sort of like ways in which I would, my life was becoming sort of centered around the opportunities to get a good buzz and how I was going to control it. Um, where it turned for me was when things started getting really dark for me, when, when I was having pain, physical and emotional pain and feeling really lost, feeling spiritually broken, you know, just really disconnected from the things that gave me joy and gave me a feeling of purpose. I started drinking more and more to avoid those feelings, you know, to escape or to self-medicate. And it became almost like an alter ego that I would put on to pretend like I wasn't in this pain or in, in you know, suffering the degrada degradation that I was going through what I was. Um, and that's when it ramped up in quantity and frequency and the times that I did, it would go from this facade of, oh, I'm just partying like a rock star to really dark and sad episodes. And it, and it got, it got bad, you know? I went through all the different phases that an alcoholic does. And you talk about the stages of grief. I think 
I think the stages of grief in terms of giving up alcohol begin before you, long before you even actually give it up, right? Because you're negotiating with yourself. The bargaining is happening throughout your addiction, right? It's like, well, maybe, you know, I, if I just get it under control, if I just, you know, switch to beer instead of liquor, if I only drink on the weekends, or I can have a couple after five o'clock, but then, I, you know, I can only get drunk on the weekend. You know, just all these silly rationalizations that we give ourselves. That's bargaining, you know? And I went through that for years, you know, and thinking and feeling this, this illusion that I had control over it, but really it was controlling me more and more over time until it was undeniable that my life was completely unmanageable and that this, this baffling and powerful thing had control over me more than I ever had control over it. Yeah, I, I when I was reading your book, I was expecting more of the rock and roll drinking debauchery. But what stood out to me was you you had said that honestly, it wasn't as much with the touring or performing because a lot of performers want to be clear headed and alert and put on a good performance. It seems like the drinking, like you said, really ramped up more after you were out of that environment which is that true did i interpret interpreting it that correctly yes absolutely and and i wanted to make that distinction with the book that this was not just another sex drugs and rock and roll book there's been plenty of those you know we've seen on on in the bookstores over the years and not that those can't be a lot of fun or or interesting but this is more about mental health and a journey for me and i felt like i wanted to delve into the nuance of what that journey was more than the details of, of the partying as a rock star, that kind of thing. But yes, you're absolutely right that drinking for me when I was performing was really more still the, the kind of college fun thing. It wasn't something that was, I don't remember being wasted, you know, on stage or maybe hung over once or twi- twice on stage when I, we had had some big event and then, you know, I had to perform the next day, but it wasn't anywhere close to the point that it became later because we were very serious about what we were doing. I was actually a little surprised by that, to be honest, because, you know, growing up, you hear the stories about the rock and roll lifestyle. And I, I was, I started playing drums in the late eighties when it was the the hair metal era, the glam, glam band. And so looking at Guns N' Roses and Motley Crue and all of those bands, like that's the image I had of what touring looked like. <laughs> and by the time we were touring and, and, and playing on that stage in 2002, three, you know, most of the, the artists that were lucky enough to still be performing at that level were pretty serious about their craft. You know, I'm sure that behind the scenes, there's, you never know what's going on, but, but I think that the world had changed. Like you, people expect their performers to be on point, you know, they don't want them to be messed up the way they did in the seventies and the eighties. And there's so much big money, you know, corporations and things running these, promoting these tours that if you, if you had a big blow up or, you know, a tour meltdown, you know, you're liable to get sued, you know? So it wasn't that, I mean, the the big artists that we toured with were very much professionals, you know? And so for me, like I said, it was, it was when I lost all of that, when I, when I was not able to maintain that performance. And I started feeling really down and really depressed that the alcohol started becoming more habitual. And it wasn't, I mean, I, it was this facade of the rock and roll lifestyle. I, I was pretending to be just 
being debaucherous and having fun. But really what I was doing was suffering more and more internally and trying to escape it. Yeah. And that just kind of makes me think about, you know, you mentioned about just the machine and the business behind these kinds of industries, all industry really for everyone. And so that made it very hard to get help in a way, right? So you you couldn't just take a break because you have a tour schedule, right? You can't really miss work when you're like there's all these people that are relying on you. Yeah, and I, I touch on that in the book, Hard to Breathe, but I also wrote a an a article that came out recently in Variety magazine on this topic. They actually asked me to write an article on this topic because it's interesting to see how the world has changed in terms of mental health and performance at this point, or is just starting to change now. When I was performing 20 years ago, and and it was this big, it became this big corporate enterprise. Basically, we we were told say yes to everything because you know if you're lucky enough to have a hit, that may never come again. And if you say no, it definitely will never come again. So you have to say yeah. If you know if if the promoters in in England say you got to come here for a week. You got to go there for a week. If the promoters in Japan say you got to come here for a week, you got to go there. And like any downtime that we had between 2002 and 2005 just got filled up immediately as more stuff started coming in. So we literally didn't have a break for like three, four years straight, maybe a, a few days here and there back home in LA. But some of those were the most exhausting days because you're home for three days and you have a show where all of your friends and family want to see you and they want tickets. And so it's like, there's really no reprieve from, from the, the energy that just keeps going and going on this train that you're on and being one fifth of a band that is a part of this big enterprise. That is our record label, our promotional team, our management, you know, there's no way I could say, Hey, can we, can we make sure that we have two weeks off in September? They'd say, oh, sure, we'll try to do that. Sure, we'll try to do that. And then it'd be like, oh, we, we have a new single coming out and we need to shoot a video. And then, you, the, the, you know, the single's coming out in Brazil. So we got to go down there for a week. And so it just, it, no matter how much I asked, it, 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 I just gave up at a certain point because it wasn't, it, if something came up, it was going to fill the spot. And, and honestly, I felt bad asking because it was like, we, we don't know if we'll ever get this opportunity again. And we have to make the most of it. But now, you know, I don't know if that's the case today. It is a different world in terms of the music business. And you do see artists canceling tours, you know, citing their mental health as the reason for it. And you never would have seen that 20 years ago. So, I mean, I am hopeful that there is more thoughtfulness at this point in terms of the, the health and sustainability of young performers in their career. Yeah, we are starting to see it more. And in sports, too. We, you know, Simone Biles and pulling out of the Olympics. I mean, that would have been unheard of. Right. I think, you know, COVID, for how awful it's been, it has shined a lot of light on mental health. And and I think it was also a wake-up call well it kind of showed what was possible because it shut down the touring industry and it shut down these athletic performances all of that and it showed that it could be possible to shut them down too it's so interesting thank you for sharing that too because i think you know just as 
an ordinary person in suburbia, it's like, what's up with these people and exhaust? Like, it just seems so glamorous, right? Mm -hmm. But, but at the end of the day, like, you're a person and you, I, I mean, you have to take care of yourself and, and instead of becoming like a, just a cog in this machine, making money, like I, it's hard to imagine, but I think you did a good job in your book of explaining and hopefully helping other people in a similar situation. But I know a lot of people, you know, just to bring it back to ordinary, quote unquote, ordinary people, like, I think a lot of people feel that way about getting help for their own problems. Like, oh, I could never leave my job. I couldn't go to rehab. How could I leave for 30 days? Everything would fall apart. My family would fall apart. I'd lose my job. You know, there's still that pressure we put on ourselves to get help. So how did you finally um, get help? Well, I was, you know, I'm very fortunate that I did have the ability to take the time to really dedicate myself to my recovery. I, I really understand how for some people uh, that option is, is really not as viable for some of the reasons you just stated. You know, obviously I can only tell my story. For me, my world was getting smaller and smaller in my addiction. Drinking was becoming the center of my world more and more, and I was becoming more isolated, really just lacking any, any feeling of, of purpose or meaning in my life and just kind of drinking, drinking until I passed out on my couch most nights. And it, it got really, there were some really humbling moments that led to me getting help. And it was my girlfriend who was living with me, finally telling me like, I don't want to see you living this way. And I don't know what it's going to mean for our relationship if you know, you get the help that you need, but I'd rather you be healthy and, and take care of yourself, uh, and to see where, where we can go from there, than to see you killing yourself basically. And I, I had been so humbled at that point. I, I, it was like at the end stages where all of my illusions of control over this thing had been shattered. It was very clear that it, it was entirely unmanageable. And I was, I was just headed towards worse and worse addiction until I died. And so there really was a, a sort of moment of clarity as, as messed up as I still was. And the only chance I had was just to start walking in the other direction. Thankfully, my girlfriend and my therapist at the time were able to check me into the Betty Ford Center out here in Southern California. And that was the start of the journey for me, which was terrifying at first, you know, just showing up and detoxing for the first few days, shaking like a leaf and, and just really not knowing what it was going to be. But within a really relatively short period of time, it became a really amazing experience and a, an awakening for me in that for the first time I felt connected for, for the first time in a long time, felt connected to other people in a meaningful way, connected to something larger than myself. And at first it was really just the program itself. You know, I didn't really have to think about a, a, a spiritual life beyond that. It was just, there were people here that were a few weeks or a month ahead of me in the, in the process and seemed to be doing really well and seemed to be really comfortable in their own skin in a way that I wasn't. And so I was just kind of following the leader until a week or two in, I was feeling a little bit more comfortable, still really anxious, but better than I was. And then realizing the new people coming in behind me that were a week or two you know, earlier in their recovery than I was, I could be of service to them. 
I could actually, you know, give them some encouragement. I could show them around and explain the process to them a little bit. And that was a powerful moment of sort of discovering what my definition of spirituality is. Just feeling that I could be, I could have some purpose and down to the dumps as I had been, I could be helpful to another human being and, and be connected to someone else in that way. It, it, it didn't require a connection to something ethereal. It was very human, you know, just, just the process of showing up and bringing the person I am in that moment to a situation in which that might actually be helpful to someone. Um, it was, it was powerful. I felt, I felt a sense of purpose for the first time in a long time. And I just kind of followed that feeling as I moved forward into when I finished at, at Betty Ford, I went into an outpatient program, continued the, the same kind of thing. And within six months, I was volunteering at that outpatient clinic as a peer support and as a co-leader of groups and really just trying to tell my story and the things I'd learned in my early recovery to help others. And that was just really powerful. That helped keep me sober and it helped give me a new sense of meaning in my life. And I did that for two years before I realized this is maybe something I want to do for a living now. And had a lot of great encouragement from the people around me there. And so I decided to go back to school and get a master's degree in clinical psychology to become some kind of counselor. And now I'm a therapist. So that's something I never could have foreseen. And, and it wouldn't have happened had it not been for the journey of suffering and of recovery that I've gone through both as an alcoholic and as somebody with mental health challenges to now be at a place where I have all the education that I gained from that whole long time in my life that was difficult, but now inspiring and realizing that I have new purpose and new, new ways to feel fulfilled in life, to use that to be of service to others. Yeah, that makes me think about that, that saying like things don't happen to you, they happen for you. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way of looking at it because Nobody wants to go through a hard time, right? It's like, we don't wake up in the morning and say, you know, the next six months of my life are going to be hell. And it's hard to have the perspective when you're in the middle of something difficult because we all, life is, is, is that way, right? Sometimes we think things are great and then something comes up. We all go through loss at some point in our life. We all deal with, you know, the ebb and flow of life in terms of the ups and the downs. And it's hard to have that perspective of even, even from something this really seemingly bad, something wonderful could come from it. But one way or another, if you have that mentality, it will. You know, I mean, if, if, the, if, the, if the, the good times inevitably end, so do the bad times, right? This too shall pass. And when it does, you have all of that perspective to gain from it. You have all of the growth that comes from it. As long as you're willing to be humble and you're willing to accept what life is is giving to you in that, what the lessons are and what the opportunities are. And you can look at them as challenges. That's why I refer to them as mental health challenges in my book, rather than problems or issues, you know? Mm. It's like, we're all faced with challenges in life, somewhere along the line, some more than others, of course. I mean, some people have relatively blessed lives compared to others. And I consider myself one of those people, but we're all, we all have challenges and a challenge is just that, it's an opportunity to grow and to find new pathways in life. Yeah, I love that. 
So what would you say to someone who's listening and, and they're having the challenge of, of drinking and they're wanting to give up drinking or change their drinking? Well, that's, you know, there's, it's an interesting conversation going on, I feel like, in the public sphere in terms of our relationship to alcohol and alcoholism. You know, I think that, that the traditionally, you know, the 12-step sort of idea is that the first step is you have to find acceptance. You have to be truly humbled, you know, and admit that you're an alcoholic. That's why we immediately say, you know, hi, I'm Ryan, I'm an alcoholic. It's like until, you, until you've really gotten on your knees and realized, like, this is a, a disease, you know, that's, that I can't fight it with my willpower. I have to surrender to a higher power to, to overcome this. I, I do believe in that process. I understand why people have an issue with it and they want to come up with new definitions of, I don't consider myself to have a disease, you know, or I want to change my relationship with alcohol. I don't want to say that I'm an alcoholic. I don't consider myself a fall down drunk. I just, I'm having a problem or with, with how it's affecting my life. It's a, it's an interesting dilemma because I do think that the first step for any, for the program of recovery is, is a certain amount of acceptance and humility, right? Is to be able to recognize like, clearly my way of doing this is not working so well, right? Even if it's like, I drink a little too much on the weekends. I don't like the person that I become, or it's affecting my relationships. And, you know, I just don't feel as good as I can. I'm kind of depressed and I wish I didn't rely on drinking so much. Um, all the way up to I'm a fall down drunk drinking 24 seven, wherever you are in that journey, wherever, wh whatever kind of alcoholic you are or how you define it, I can tell you that, that just saying I have control over it now is usually not the thing that's going to work. <laughs> there are a lot of different avenues to recovery, but I, I do believe that the first step is reaching a certain level of acceptance of, okay, let me slow down for a minute. Clearly what I'm doing is working, is it not working? And if it were working, I wouldn't be having this debate with myself right now, right? And there's, there's got to be another way. And maybe it's something that's larger than me. Maybe it's not my willpower. It's not my, my mind and, the, and all the ways I've been trying to rationalize or, or control the feelings that I'm having. It's reaching out for help. You know, that's really essentially for any mental health challenge, one of the, the important first steps, being humble enough to recognize I need help and be, and and hopefully not feeling the stigma that reaching out for help somehow makes you weak. It's the, it's the, it's the most powerful, empowering thing that you can do for yourself is to recognize when I don't have all the answers and that's okay. I wasn't given all of these answers that I need and somebody else might have them. So asking for help is really the thing that I'm doing to advocate for myself most. Yeah, th those are very helpful. And I'm glad that you brought up, you know, the different ways and that the, the dialogue now is alternative ways of recovering and modern day recovery. And I'm, I'm more in that bucket. I didn't do AA or 12 stuff. And so I, I like to bring a lot of the biology and medical side of things. And like, if you don't identify as an alcoholic, like that's okay. You know, now we're using alcohol use disorder and it's on a spectrum, like you said, from mild to moderate to severe, but just recognizing that, hey, maybe you can do something about this. And and maybe instead of asking like, do I have a problem with drinking? Would my life be better without alcohol and, and seeing how you do without it and getting the help to do that? It seems so easy. 
in theory, right? Like to not do something like, hey, we can solve your drinking problem. Just don't drink. But right. it's, it's just so much harder than that. It is. And I had a debate with one of my professors in grad school about this. I think he was just trying to make us think or just to be a contrarian. But he, he said that very same thing. He's like, it's very easy to not drink. Just don't drink. You know, there's a drink on the table. Don't pick it up. And and I was I was getting a little agitated. I was like, well, yes, in, in, in theory, it's that simple. But if you have a problem with that, with with a, if you have a drinking problem, it's not that simple because there are forces at play in, in your mind, in your body that are larger than your willpower in terms of just the, just, I'm going to say, I'm not going to drink. So for some people, I do think it is helpful to say, I have this powerful and baffling disorder, right? Because being able to name it and be able to say, I am so humbled by this, you know, I have to admit this is uh, a disease, even if it doesn't technically meet the definition of a disease or your definition of disease, for some people, that is a helpful statement, a helpful statement of, of humility to say, I am totally helpless with this, with this disorder. For other people, maybe it's not. And I do think that there are, there are multiple pathways. There's, there's not one pathway to recovery. And, you know, you mentioned the, the biology and that whole idea, the, uh, the neuroscience of addiction. The, the Matrix Institute, which is where I went for my outpatient program after I left Betty Ford, was a cognitive behavioral therapy-based program, not a 12-step program. And the, the, the biology, the brain biochemistry of addiction was a big part of the education that we gave people there. And that was really helpful, you know, because there's a reason why our minds, our brains become addicted. And there are very specific pathways and neurotransmitters that are, that are at play when you are stuck in that loop, right? When, when, you've, be, when you've identified alcohol or any other substance as the solution, it's not just psychology, it's biology and chemistry, right? So understanding how that works, we, we explained it in layman's terms. It wasn't like, you know, something that you have to be a, a grad school student to understand. It's, it's pretty simple. But then just the, the basic psychology of it, you know, in order to, to stop a, a bad behavior, it's, it's better because it's really hard to just wake up one day and say, I'm going to stop doing this bad behavior or this habit that I had been doing for 30 years, right? It's better to create new behaviors to replace it with, right? So we called that thought stopping or thought replacing, where one thought that was unproductive for you, just like, you know, telling yourself, telling myself I'm not good enough over and over again, is going to lead to depression if you keep giving yourself that negative self-thought, placing that with a more positive thought that facilitates hopefulness um, and self-esteem. That's going to be a very basic form of cognitive behavioral therapy to lead to a happier state of mind. Same thing with alcoholism. I think that's another effective way. For me, I, I really retrained my mind in terms of my relationship with alcohol. Not that I could control it or that I had, I just needed to moderate it, but really to see it as poison for me. So just yeah. like when I see someone drinking a martini, I just kind of laugh and I'm like, ah, oh, that person's drinking lighter fluid, basically. You know, that's because that's what it is to me. I know for me is poison. And so I really kind of did the CBT in terms of reprocessing alcohol in my mind as not this glamorous thing and this solution that I had built it up to be, but rather to be completely 100% toxic for you. Yeah. And I think that goes to like when you are asking for help or seeking help, that part of that can be educating yourself. 
mm-hmm. educating yourself about the effects of alcohol and what it really is doing to your brain, to your body. Yeah. Curious because you had used some azepines and maybe some other drugs. I'm not sure, but I'm just curious why, what makes alcohol like your thing? <laughs> and do you find that when people have full use disorders, does it seem like alcohol is usually that number one? This is always, or what do you do this? This is always a fun conversation amongst people in recovery. Yeah, I think everyone's different. Just as a person who is fascinated by psychology and passionate about it, I always find that, that people t- tend to have one drug of choice. I mean, there are people that will come in. If you go to a meeting, we'll say, I'm an addict. Yeah, and, you know, I was basically a, a garbage can. Whatever you gave me, I would. And, and then I'm sure there are people like that. But I, I do find that oftentimes the number one drug for a lot of people kind of corresponds to their personality in some way or their personal issues. If you're medicating pain in some way, literal physical pain or emotional pain, I think you're, you're oftentimes drawn to a painkiller of some kind, right? If you have... If you feel very low, if your self-esteem is very low, oftentimes I see people that will go to a stimulant of some kind, you know, to make them feel like they're King Kong, right? So they're, they're by, everyone's particular proclivity or, way, or their personal sensitivities might have something to do with the drug that they end up choosing. For me, I think the reason why alcohol was my drug of choice is because it, it had a dual, it had a, a duality to it in terms of it relaxed the nerves, right? all the self-consciousness and the anxiety and, and shyness that I had, had been a part of my personality, it was a lubricant for that. So it worked at first in terms of those things. But then also, because of that, it actually made me feel more present, which is kind of a weird paradox because it's actually making you less cognitively, cognitively present. But because I, got, I was able to get out of my own head, so much, I felt actually like I was able to connect to the present moment more to people. That, of course, was an illusion, but that was what my relationship with alcohol was. Now, you mentioned benzos. I did use benzos for a while. I never saw them as something to facilitate a good time. You know, alcohol to me was everything. If I could feel that buzz all the time, that was the perfect way to feel. And I was trying to get that feeling as much as possible. Benzos was just a way to avoid withdrawal or shakes, anxiety, and panic. It was not a fun time. It was just what I considered medication or, you know, medicine. Now, that doesn't make it any less of an addiction. It certainly was something that I misused. It was always prescribed, but I certainly misused it. And there were other drugs and things that I took at different times in recreational moments. But benzos were a big problem and made the alcoholism worse, absolutely, because it became a dual addiction. One was kind of perpetuating the other. I was trying to use the benzos to as a way to control the drinking, but then I became dependent on the benzos and then the anxiety got worse because I would try to nut the benzos and that would make me drink more. And it was this, this ridiculous loop that I was stuck in the cycle of addiction. And it was, but yeah, I, I don't think I ever put a, a clonopin or a Xanax in my mouth and said, let's, it was just like, let me try to get the shakes to go. You know, that was the thing. And alcohol, every, up until a certain point, every time I took a drink, I was, I, I was, Fooling myself into thinking this is going to be great. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to feel great and have a party. And it was it more and more was nothing. It was like the end. It was like I might feel great for an hour or a minute, but 98 percent of my day, I felt anxious, 
And then I felt good for like 1%. And then I passed, you know, that was about it. So I don't know, maybe it's an illusion to say alcohol was my drug of choice because it was just another, you know, whatever rationalization. But in my mind at one point, for a long period, for a decade, it was the answer to my problems. That's why it was number one. No, I, I mean, I get it. I always kind of wonder about it. It does come up sometimes. Like for me, like pot doesn't do it for me. Nothing right. did it for me like drinking. And I just find it interesting. And I like to hear other people's thoughts on that. Yeah, and everyone's chem chemistry is different. You know, I mean, I had friends that were, you know, a lot of musicians smoke a lot of pot, you know. Yeah. They were always encouraging me, like, you need to, you know, be part of the, the scene <laughs> and it just didn't have the same effect on me. It made me paranoid. It made me very self-conscious. I didn't like the way that I felt. So yeah, I mean, to each their own, we, you know, pick your poison. <laughs> I know they're all poison. So how has your life changed since getting sober? My life has changed night and day since getting sober. It's really been a, an incredible and inspiring journey. You know, I kind of told you the, the early parts of it. And then going to grad school was just like another stage of, of my recovery and in my own therapy, really. Because, you know, I was doing everything I could. I, I mentioned the, the CBT program, the 12 steps, my own, you know, psychotherapy I was doing. I was... You know, my whole lifestyle like, was kind of an overhaul in terms of just getting out into the world more, socializing, enjoying nature, exercising, eating better, sleeping more, you know, just everything, a whole uh, self-care routine. But then I went to back to school and I'm in grad school and I'm studying psychology, the very thing which had been a challenge for me and, and, and gaining some mastery over just my understanding of some things that I didn't have a great understanding of, which of course also helped with the self-confidence that had gone down so much. And in the process of doing that and, and, and becoming a therapist, you have to do a lot of self-reflection and not just, just in the way you do in therapy, but actually writing papers about it. Right. So that became a, just a whole other level to be like basically doing a case study on myself in terms of my psychology, everything that I had gone through and, and gotten me to where I, I was and where I was in recovery. That's what led to me wanting to write this book, Harder to Breathe, because I realized that I had two things. One, this education that I could actually bring some meaning to what I had gone through and describe it in a way that I, I had some understanding. But it also was kind of like therapy for me, you know, a narrative therapy in terms of rewriting the story of my life in a way that would be helpful for me and hopefully helpful for others. So it had new, new meaning and new purpose to it. In the same way that we tell our story at a meeting and somebody else hears it, it might feel inspired that, you know, from your suffering that you actually were able to find recovery and, and healing, um, you know, hopefully people will read this book and, and see not necessarily the, the, the same journey, as you said, the similarities, you know, not necessarily being in a band and having that experience, but the same feelings of anxiety or depression or perfectionism or putting a lot of pressure on yourself. It is that are very common, very human experiences that we all are challenged with at some point in our life. If you can relate to my journey on those levels, then hopefully you'll, you'll relate to the ways in which I've been able to heal and grow in my recovery. So it's doing that, writing the book, being on this journey now as a therapist, as somebody who's speaking to people like you, and, and getting out there and spreading a message that I have in this book, 
it just has brought a whole other level of meaning to my life and another path that I could not have foreseen and I'm very grateful for. And in some ways, it's more meaningful even than being a big, you know, famous punk star, which was fun for a minute, but not sustainable. I can tell, like, when you started talking about like what you're doing now and being a counselor, like, 10 times more glowing than <laughs> when you were talking about your time in Maroon 5. Maybe yeah. that was just my perception, but. No, Liz, you know, I mean, there were, there were really good times in the band, you know, and mostly just in, in the years when we were working and developing in the brotherhood, the fellowship of that, but it did become really painful and it became a yeah. double sword. And so, you know, my memory of it, of course, is, is, is marred by the trauma of that. And, and everything I'm doing now is really just, it's all gravy. So there's no, I mean, it's hard work what I'm doing now, but it's, it's not, it's not, you know, it's, it's just, it's just good, hard work, you know, and it's, it's something that's fulfilling. So it is. Yeah. And I liked, I was going to add, I liked how you shared how you have gone back to doing drumming and playing baseball or softball. I thought that was really like a full circle to finding joy, finding the things that originally gave you joy and can give you joy now too. Isn't that amazing? I mean, yeah. I mean, people go through traumas in their life and oftentimes it changes their relationship with life in, in certain ways. And for me, those traumas in my past were really difficult to, to get past. But when you are in recovery, you have the ability to start to, you know, rewire some of those neural pathways you know, and, and make those connections for either things that had been meaningful for you in the past or finding new things that are meaningful for you in the present and future. I've been able to do a little of both. So it's just been, you know, it's been inspiring and it's been something that I, I just wake up every day and just like, what is, what is the best thing for me to do with my time today? That's going to be productive for me and hopefully for someone that I'm being of service to. If I'm doing that and just putting one foot in front of the other, you know, what, Sooner or later, good things come, right? <laughs> yeah, that's so great. Well, tell people how they can find you and find your book. Yeah, so I have a website that just went up, ryadusic.com. It has everything that is me on there in terms of my speaking engagements, media, and then and then as a therapist and a life coach. So check out ryadusic.com. And then my book, Harder to Breathe, is going to be out in stores. It's November 15th, and uh, you can order it on Amazon or barnesandnoble.com or, or walk into one of those stores and uh, buy it. And then my Instagram, Ryan Michael Dusick, Ryan underscore Michael underscore Dusick, is uh, a fun place to check out some videos and stuff. And well, thank you. Thank you so much for writing the book and sharing your story and just giving people inspiration. and. And just showing that, like, we can all recover, we can all find meaning and purpose in our lives and help other people, too. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate this opportunity. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Alcohol Tipping Point podcast. Please share and review the show so you can help other people, too. I want you to know I'm always here for you. So please reach out and talk to me on Instagram at Alcohol Tipping Point and check out my website, alcoholtippingpoint.com for free resources and help. No matter where you are on your drinking journey, I want to encourage you to just keep practicing, 
keep going. I promise you are not alone and you are worth it. Every day you practice not drinking is a day you can learn from. I hope you can use these tips we talked about for the rest of your week. And until then, talk to you next time.